You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. This week, I am out on spring break. I'm also trying to get over a cold, as you can probably tell from my voice, trying to clear my head before book launch time. So you are not getting a new episode today, but I did rummage through our extensive podcast archives to find a really good rerun that Tommy and Corinne could get ready for you. So it's been a while since we did a rerun. So for new listeners, these usually come from Comfort Food, the sadly now retired podcast I made for a few years with my very best friend, Amy Palangian of Yummy Toddler Food. A lot of the OG Burnt Toast listeners have been with me since the Comfort Food days, so it's always kind of fun for us to revisit it. But I promise if you're new, you will still enjoy it. You won't be out of the loop in any way. You don't need to like have a whole season to understand the plot. This episode was called Mealtime Mental Load Struggles. It's an interview that Amy and I did with Darcy Lockman, who is the author of All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. We aired this episode on September 19th, 2019, so you have to put yourself in the pre-pandemic world a little bit, but I would say it's definitely a conversation that's ahead of its time because, you know, we were still months away from the pandemic, which is what really laid bare all the disproportionate ways that mothers and really all non-cis men people carry families. At the same time, Darcy's work, her book is one of the texts that was just so foundational for me in starting to understand this issue more deeply. So I think you will get a lot out of listening. One thing I really like about Darcy's work is that she does invite men into the conversation. It's not just ranting, not that I don't love ranting about straight men, but it's not just ranting about how they're failing. It's also talking about how we can change the conversation and move forward. One quick note I want to make before we dive in. Darcy's book does focus on heterosexual partnerships, and therefore this conversation is very cishet focused. If I were to do it today, I would definitely broaden that out a lot. I have since heard from plenty of queer couples who also struggle with this issue, though it is also true that queer couples are often a lot more proactive about addressing and working through mental load divisions just because they aren't falling back on the hetero gender conditioning bullshit. So there's obviously a lot more layers than we could get into here. And just know that I am aware that that piece is missing it is one I would love to circle back on in the future. But I think you will really enjoy this. Here are Darcy, Amy, and me. But first, a quick break. Okay, we are now officially less than a month from Fat Talks Pub Day. My finished books have arrived. It's fine. Everything's fine. I am a little bit not fine, but I'm trying to be fine. (sighs) It's exciting, guys. So I do want to tell you about the first official stop on my book tour. This will be a conversation between myself and the great Julia Tertian. So excited. We're going to do it on Saturday, April 22nd at 3 p.m. This event is hosted by Split Rock Books, and we're holding it at the Desmond Fish Library in Garrison, New York. I would love to see you there. You can pre-order a signed copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock Books. Just click the link in your episode description, and you can pick that up at the event. Have me sign it for you there or have it shipped anywhere in the U.S. I will still sign it and personalize it however you want. You can also pre-order Fat Talk anywhere else you buy books, ebooks, and audiobooks. You can tell your local library to pre-order it, and the U.K. edition is also available for pre-order now. We will have all those links in the episode description and the show notes for you. So if you've been like, yeah, 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 I will get around to pre-ordering that, and you haven't done it yet, totally get it. Do that all the time myself. 
Now is the time we need the pre-orders to come in because strong pre-orders truly make all the difference to the success of a book. The next few weeks are crucial. Thank you so much for your support and for everything you do to support the show. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Comfort Food. This is the podcast about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and feeding ourselves. So we've talked about the challenges of sharing the mental load of mealtimes in past episodes. Check out episode 15, 31, and 35. But this week we brought in an expert who really knows what the research says about how and why this gender divide happens. And we're going to talk about what we think everyone should be doing about it. I'm Virginia Soulsmith. I'm a writer, a contributing editor to Parents Magazine, and author of The Eating Instinct. I write about how women relate to food in our bodies and a culture that gives us so many unrealistic expectations about those things. And I'm Amy Palangian, a writer, recipe developer, and creator of Yummy Toddler Food. And I love helping parents stop freaking out about what their kids will and won't eat and sharing doable recipes that fit into even the busiest family schedule. And I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Darcy Lockman, who is the author of All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Um, I am trying to remember where I first found out about Darcy's book, but I mostly just remember rushing to buy it and reading it voraciously in about three days. Um, So I encourage you all to do the same. So Darcy is a clinical psychologist practicing in New York City, also a journalist who's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, and many other places. Darcy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amy and Virginia. Um, So to start with, why don't you tell us a little more about yourself and your family, especially because I think everyone's going to be interested to know, you know, what prompted you to write a book about uh, (laughs) all this equal partnership stuff at home? Well, when I tell you I have two kids and I'm married to a man, I bet you can imagine. (laughs) 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 Um, So yeah, so I live in in Queens and I have um, two daughters. They actually started school today, second and fifth grade. Um, Yes, we live with them and my husband and our dog. And I was really surprised when we had kids, uh, starting with our first daughter, but then, you know, kind of snowballing through our second, how much of the workload of all of it fell to me. Um, And it was hard to articulate a name. But my husband, despite the fact that we both worked and work um, full time, we actually met in grad school. So we're both therapists. He seemed to kind of be sailing through his life without much having changed. And that Mm. was the same for me, Um, which is not to say that he didn't like spend time with and adore our children because he certainly did and does. But his life was still kind of going to work and then coming home and like hanging out with the kids. Whereas I suddenly had like a thousand new things to do every day. And it wasn't anything that we planned that way. And we would have certainly identified as progressive and egalitarian before we had kids. Um, And if it had just been our problem, I would have thought, okay, what what am I doing wrong? But I noticed that all of the women around me um, with young kids spoke about what happened at home in the same way. So every day in the early years of parenthood for me, I just found myself asking this question, why are we all still living this way? This wasn't what we expected, what's going on? And it became such a burning question that I ultimately decided to try to answer it by writing a book. I mean, I, you're speaking to a lot of our souls right now. I think. <laughs> I'm sure. So we um, we talk a lot about mental load issues in the kitchen um, in many of our episodes. And in your book, you have an anecdote, anecdote about making chicken nuggets that I'm sure will speak to a lot of us. Um, can you 
can you talk a little bit about why you think family meals in particular remain such a gendered um, issue and also tell the chicken nugget story? Okay. Well, I'll start with the chicken nugget story because I think this, that everyone has this chicken nugget story. We had been at the beach all day, um, my husband and my kids. This was not this summer, but the past one. And we stayed all day. It was a gorgeous day and we didn't eat dinner. So we're driving home in the car and I'm thinking, okay, what are the kids going to eat? They're starving. They need to get to bed. So, you know, I said to my husband, oh, we have chicken nuggets in the freezer. Let's give, you know, let's give them those. And we get home and he said, okay. So we get home and, you know, the kids need to shower off because they've been at the beach and my little one was, I think, I guess she was five at the time. So I was helping her shower. My older daughter went to shower herself and my husband went into the kitchen. So I assumed he was making dinner for the kids because we had discussed it in the car. (laughs) So about five minutes later, you know, after my younger daughter and I had showered, um, we came out together. I had dried her off. She was getting dressed and I walked into the kitchen and my husband was just standing there drinking a beer and there were no nuggets in the oven. Um, they hadn't been gotten out of the freezer. I mean, clearly not, nothing had happened to make <laughs> happen. And it wasn't even like an elaborate dinner. And this kind of thing happens all the time, wherein I'm the only one thinking about what the family needs. Um, and my husband's not a bad guy. He's not a selfish guy. It's just like not in his, um, I, I don't know. I'm not I, thinking I, those steps ahead. The yeah, way I mean, I, my yeah. husband is not a bad guy either, but it's like you are telling the story of my house. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. about every day this summer, we would like not every day, but a lot of weekends, we would take the girls to the pool. And I was always like, let's eat lunch at the pool. You know, they have like hot dogs or chicken fingers or whatever. And I was always like, let's just eat lunch at the pool before, because I'm picturing getting home in a wet swimsuit, figuring oh, yeah. out lunch. Yeah. And he was always like, ah, oh, it's so expensive. Let's just go <laughs> home for lunch. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand how you don't understand why that's so much worse. Yeah. So. You do understand why he doesn't understand. I mean, let, let's go home and you make them lunch instead while I go, you know, clean up. Right, oh right. Well, I take a shower, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, we've saved $40 on pool food, which I get is ridiculous, but it's like, uh, no, so aggravating. You pay you $40 for your time, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is the thing. It's all, it's, there's all this unpaid labor that women end up doing, and it really adds up over the life course, and it makes a big difference to people's financial lives. I read recently, I keep coming across this stuff that I think, oh, I wish I could have put this in the book. Women over 65 are twice as likely as men over 65 to be living in poverty. And a lot of that, um, a lot of that to how much more time they have spent in their lives doing free labor. Wow. That is staggering. That is really staggering. Yeah. So the consequences of this, I mean, we, we laugh about it understandably, um, because this is our experience and it's hard not to laugh because we were living it. Um, laugh and be enraged. Laugh and cry a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, there really are like are serious consequences to the fact that women are the ones who carry most of this stuff. Um, so that, you know, the chicken nugget story, like, again, like everyone has that story and it happens so regularly. Um, and I think why women remain more responsible for the, the mental labor of meals because they're more responsible for everything. So I think it's of a piece. I don't know that that's yeah. a special piece of it. It's it's one part of it. It's just consistent across the board. There's and it's such be- a big source of labor at home that oh, yeah. if you're doing everything, of course, you're going to be doing this giant thing. Right, right. Yeah. And kids eat three times a day. The right. lawn needs to be mowed. You know, I don't know how often because I don't have a lawn. But once I assume a week. More than once a week. Yeah. yeah, like maybe every two During weeks. the growing so season. And if it doesn't yeah. get done, the consequences are not catastrophic. You can't stop feeding your family. Right. Right. The lot is far more optional than yeah. the chicken nuggets. Yeah. I got emails from men after the book came out saying, I do all the yard work. 
I was like, hey. yeah, I hear that a lot. Yeah, I'm in charge of the outside. Like the outside is not where the kids are most of the time. It's just not where most of the work is. Yeah, that's also, interesting. There's a great study that came out after my book came out that I wish I could have in my book. But urban men who don't have outdoor work to do, such as in my family, we don't have a, we don't really use a car. We don't have a yard. There's no gutter to clean. Urban men don't make up for the difference in the labor they don't have to do outside by doing more inside. Just um, interesting. They're just really living their best lives. <laughs> Lying on their bed, playing on their phones. That's the best life. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm being really cynical. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, in, you know, we'll be clear, like we're not putting anybody's husband, including yours, who's obviously been a good sport about this whole project. Um, yes. uh, you know, we're not putting anyone on blast here. Um, but I just, I remember reading the chicken nugget story and circling it in my copy of the book. Um, and then, you know, you, when you're talking about it in the book, you wrote, it was not laziness. It was something I had no name for and nothing I could hope to understand. And that really struck me because it does feel like this opaque thing where, if you're the person, the woman who's thinking the six steps ahead and used to figuring out like, okay, what do they need to eat? And when are we doing this and juggling all of that? It's like, feels so hard to understand why the other person can't see the same needs. But what did the research show you about why that's happening? Why are men failing to see and let alone act on these really basic needs of kids needing dinner? Sociologists have really good language for this. They talk about how girls are really raised to be communal, to think about other people and their needs and concerns a lot of the time, and how boys are raised more uh, to think about their own sense of agency, to be agentic, as they say, mm -hmm. uh, to think about their ambitions and their pleasures, uh, and think and not think about others quite as much. So in that context, it makes sense that when in adulthood you have a man and a woman living together, these two different ways of being are going to like come together in a household in exactly this way. Wow, that's fascinating. So it's very much a socialized thing versus a like, oh, women are just natural caregivers. Women are not are no more natural caregivers than men. Another part of the, I guess, um, how stagnant this issue is, is that we do make a lot of false assumptions about biology. You know, clearly only women can gestate babies. But beyond that, men and women are equally capable of, of thinking about others and doing all of this stuff. Um, it's interesting, like even when they study the physiological responses of mothers and fathers to babies, they're exactly the same. They don't really find any differences. Um, in the 70s, they started looking at dads, which hadn't been done before that. And they did studies in uh, nursery wards of men's heart rate, skin conductance, and blood pressure when interacting with their infants, with their newborns, and they rose at the same rate as women. So there were no physiological differences in, in responses. So the only thing that differed between men and women is that men take a step back in the presence of their wives. And this was with newborns. But what happens is parenting skills are learned and not innate. So if men are always taking a step back in that way, the learning curve is going to be much different for men and women. So women tend to like spend more time with babies early on, and then they learn more, and then they know more. And we, you know, we make these assumptions about nature that are untrue. And in fact, one of the things that I learned while working on this, and I almost can't believe I didn't know this before, is that men's hormones change when they spend time in intimate contact with a pregnant woman. So there is a like neurobiological mechanism that primes men for fatherhood, just as it does for women. It doesn't get a lot of play, right? We have all these assumptions about how men are a nice addition to a family, but really children are about mommies. Um, and, and really, though, what, what they have found 
what neuroscience is finding is that changes in the brain around parenthood have more to do with being a primary parent than with being either gender. So when they look at the brain activity of primary care fathers, it's basically the same as that of primary care mothers. So again, it's about time spent with the baby as opposed to being either a man or a woman. That's fascinating. So it really is a, a learning, like there's a learning curve and you have to be in there doing the work to learn this stuff. And the way, you know, there's so many things about like the way we have parental leave structured in this country where men don't get any, that the scale is really tipped in so many ways toward the mother from day one. And the, Right. There's this whole framework. Sorry, Amy. I was going to say, and then like the culture of mom guilt, if you are not doing all of the things. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, that that culture... Um, intensified in the mid-90s, which is when mothers' labor force participation peaked. So just as mothers were um, achieving more at work and more commonly in the workplace, the bar for what being an adequate mother was, was really raised. And um, Sharon Hayes, who's a sociologist, called this intensive mothering. She called these new standards intensive mothering. And we all know what they are because we live them. And I think those of us, you know, I'm in my 40s. Um, I was not raised in the same way, in the same environment that my kids are being raised in, just in that parents were a lot less involved. We kind of did our own thing, um, which wasn't bad. But now what we see is, you know, um, this concerted cultivation, as it's been called, all this attention being paid to kids. Um, in like every facet of their being. And while what parents are able to provide for their kids does vary in terms, you know, by socioeconomic class or status, really that that um, sort of um, demand for intensive mothering does not change. It's there. You see it in every stratosphere of um, socioeconomic status, the demands that mothers place on themselves and feel they have to live up to. Oh, this is really resonating um, as it is back to school time. And my six-year-old is starting first grade. And I, Amy and I were just texting this morning <laughs> about trying to be more hands-off. Well, me, you're, Amy's doing a good job with this, um, about things like first grade homework and, you know, not being obsessive about all these things that I know it hasn't even occurred to Dan to be obsessive about. <laughs> but I'm worried that, oh, wait, well, I look like I'm not on top of things if yes. we don't do X, Y, Z. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. very public, right? It feels very public for yes. they have to be doing these things because, it, it, you know, it's such a vulnerable thing raising kids. We want approval, you know. So yeah. this is how to get it, like be really intense about it all the time. Well, I think that that plays into how we're feeding our families too. I mean, we want like our kids to love us through food just um and we and I think there is a sort of an expectation of well maybe this is just me because I am a food blogger (laughs) so um but you know there is an expectation that we're going to make certain types of meals and I don't think it's just you I think food feeding kids is very performative these days it's definitely I feel like there's a a lot of moms I mean we hear from yeah there's a lot of boxes that we feel like we need to check with every meal that just like the deck the deck just seems so highly stacked against like reality Mm -hmm. yeah I I remember reading a lot of parenting articles and anytime there was a reference to food the writer would be very careful to say like I as I was cutting my child's organic carrots And I was so determined in writing this not to do that. Um, (laughs) I don't write a lot about food, but I'm like, I'm not going to say that I do anything organic or natural. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right. I stuff as much as anybody, but that, you know, I don't don't know. There's something. But it's a standard you don't need to perpetuate. Yeah. Yeah. Formative piece of it. Um, Yeah. Well, and it's this self-fulfilling thing where 
as feeding kids gets more and more complicated and layered, you're now increasing, if we go back to sharing the load with a partner, you're increasing the learning curve for that partner who, you know, it started at a disadvantage not because not because men are disadvantaged in this, but because there was all this sort of pressure for him to be less engaged. And now when they do step in to try to do things, it's like, no, you're doing it wrong. Like there's that whole like piece of it, right? Where it's, you know, we've made it so complicated. Yeah. Except, you know, I hate, I, I, I like to stay away from the, and I know you're not meaning to do this, but like the mother blaming thing, you know, we've made it so complicated. We tell them they're not doing it right. There is that concept, you know, there, there is that, of course, I don't mean to say it doesn't exist. Um, the name for it again, sociologists have all these great words is um, maternal gatekeeping. You know, the idea that women keep men out by tell them, telling them they're not doing it good enough. Right. No. Yeah. Explain why you are, cause I was very interested in how you articulated this in the book. Say more about this. So, so again, there, there's this term maternal gatekeeping and it's about women criticizing their husbands. And so their husbands kind of take a step back because they don't want to be criticized. And then the mother ends up doing it all. And a lot of people, you know, when I've had casual conversations with people about this topic, and especially before the book came out, I definitely had people say to me, well, women are just too picky. And so men, you know, men, men just back off because, you know, the women are so critical, right? And I, I hate... <laughs> Virginia, this is not about what you just said, but I no, 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 <laughs> not offended. Yeah, because it's like let's just keep blaming women for everything. Um, I would, and I interviewed women for the book who would say to me, you know, that makes me so mad because you know my husband, when I'm out, will let our our toddler stay up till ten o'clock, and when when I say to him, what were you thinking? He says to me, well, you know, he said he wasn't tired, um, and obviously that's that's not the way that you can interact with a four-year-old, you tell them when it's bedtime. You don't wait until they say they're tired because it's going to be midnight. Um, but so she said to me, you know, if I, if I am critical of that with him, am I being a shrew or am I being a reasonable parent? And the answer, of course, is always that I'm a shrew because women are not allowed to like comment without getting put in this kind of bucket of um, maternal gatekeeping, I suppose. So one of the men who I interviewed for the book, a sociologist, would say, like a man would say to him, well, my wife says I don't vacuum good enough, so I just don't do it anymore. And I, I kind of was nodding along during this interview. And then Michael Kimmel, the academic, says to me, no, I say to him, you know, if, if you were working on a report at work and your colleagues said this isn't up to par, would you say to them, well, I'm just never going to do it anymore then? You know, that's not the way you work on a team. Like if, if um, you and your wife um, have different ideas about what what is acceptable. You have to come to an agreement about what the standards are. So men kind of sometimes back out of work by saying, well, I don't do it well enough for you. So you're just going to have to do it. And that's actually one of the strategies that's been identified that men use in, as a way to get themselves out of having to do labor in the home. And make women feel guilty in the process. Yeah, that's exactly. awesome. Yeah. Like you're such a nag for asking me to take out the garbage. <laughs> it's really a story about um, a man shirking responsibility. Like who, why is the nag, quote unquote, the bad guy in that story? Right. Why, why is she even having to ask? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Why isn't the person who isn't behaving like an adult in their own home the one who's taken to task? And, you know, misogyny is always the answer to that question. I have a yeah. question. Um, so how, how do you think? think about these things that we have to do every day to take care of our families when one of the parents like actively enjoys something more than the other. Like say, this isn't really true in my house, but like say I really, really love cooking and my husband really, really doesn't. Like yeah. how, how do you divide that and sort of feel like 
you're not just doing everything when yeah because you aren't going to really really love it when you've done it seven nights in a right. row right you're not absolutely you know i think that's such an individual decision i mean it's a good question but I mean, I guess if you're going to think about how many hours everyone is spending on labor, you might say, well, you know, I'm the cook of our family. Why don't you be the launderer of our family or something? You know, you could do something like that. My husband and I actually tried that because he's a horrible cook for lack of experience more than anything else. But for him to catch up to where I am um, is taking much too long. And I don't like jarred spaghetti sauce. So (laughs) so we started doing the laundry instead. And, um, and that, you know, that seemed fair to both of us, though. I do have a friend, a male friend who said to me, you know, I know this isn't the right thing to say, but I'm going to say it to you anyway. Cause he does love the laundry too. Cause his wife loves to cook. He's like, Jenny loves to cook. And I don't love to do laundry. It's still kind of not fair to me. Mm. that you know I mean both people's feelings of fairness I suppose need to be addressed but I think you know whatever works for people is fine there's this um a couple of sociologists wrote a book in which they say equality is not so much an endpoint as a process and I think that's that really sums it up nicely because it's a process of discussion discussing like how do we each feel about what our responsibilities are and if either of us is unhappy we really need to you know find something that works a little bit better so whatever people want to negotiate is certainly fine i mean some people want their wife the wife the wife to do everything and the man to do nothing you know there are traditional couples who live that way and if everyone's satisfied you know great Mm-hmm. And it's true that there's some tasks like there's no I don't I don't think listeners correct me if I'm wrong but I don't think there's a human out there who loves cleaning toilets but someone has to clean the toilets so yeah. there's always going to be that balance of like maybe he does the laundry but doesn't love it but she is probably doing other tasks that she doesn't love even if she does love the cooking like mm-hmm. there's that trait you know it's nice that we can take pleasure in some of the domestic work yeah. no nobody's going to love it all yeah right that's true. There's a lot of negotiation and just paying attention. The couples I found who had um, kind of achieved the most success in terms of both feeling comfortable with what each was doing were really on top of the idea that sexism was going to seep into their relationship if they weren't careful to Mm -hmm. really um, talk a lot about how they were feeling about this stuff. Because it is a big issue in marriage. It's actually the third cited reason for divorce after infidelity and growing apart. Wow. Yeah. That's staggering. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so I want to also bring up, I mean, and this is kind of building on what you're saying about not blaming women for maternal gatekeeping, but at the same time, it does feel like there's this real push-pull here about like, you know, most of what we need to happen is for men to step up and do more and engage with this issue for sure. Yeah. But there is also a degree to which women could be stepping down in some ways and sort of letting, or at least prioritizing their own needs above, you know, this need to sort of serve everyone else in the household. Yeah. And, yes. um, and you were really helpful to me. We talked about this a few months ago because um, after I read your book and came to you at a party and was like, okay, <laughs> I have questions. Um, you know, there was this thing that happened between me and my husband, who I should say is really, really very much a shared parent um, and in this with me 50-50 in a, in a big way. But there was a day where we both recognized the kind of societal sexism seeping into our lives, um, which was I was really horrified when he chose to take a nap on an afternoon when we had childcare. And I felt like this was like so self-indulgent that he would nap when like our children were being cared for by another person. And he was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I had paid a responsible person to watch my children. I had a free afternoon. I took a nap. And you really helped me realize like that wasn't 
a situation where he needed to be more like me and like, you know, feel like he, if he's not with the kids, he has to be doing 97 productive things at all times. But in fact, like I should feel more permission to take self-care for myself. And like, like I could also take the nap. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting, in the book you called this like male entitlement versus female unentitlement. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd love for you to kind of explain that distinction and talk a little more about why moms could be a little more entitled sometimes. Yeah. Women today, working mothers today, spend as much time with their children as stay-at-home moms of the 70s. Good Lord, we're doing too much. And clearly, there are still only 24 hours in a day. Right. So what the research has found is that women accomplish this by cutting back on uh, leisure time, self-care, and sleep. So, um, you know, your husband isn't cutting back on his his sleep. No, more his leisure time. No, no. (laughs) Right. And I know like on a Saturday, my husband will be like, you know, the kids will be playing or whatever. And my husband will be lying in our bed, which is his favorite place in the world. And he'll be like, come snuggle with me. And I'll be like, are you kidding me? I have like 300 things I have to get done while the kids are, you know, napping. And then I'm annoyed with him because he's so happy to just lie on the bed and do nothing. So it's really hard to strike a balance because there are 25 things that need to be done. Um, But yeah, I think women are... Women do need to, I guess, be more self-indulgent in that way. I I could, but it's hard for me to relax when there are 25 things that need to be done because there isn't infinite time to get them done. So I guess, you know, if my husband were, I don't want to, as you say, bag on my husband in particular, but I think, let's say he, as every husband, um, if he were more on top of those things, I would have less things on my list. And then maybe I would feel more comfortable lying down for a little bit with him you know, on a Saturday afternoon. So I think, and maybe the same thing is true. Maybe I didn't, I remember when we had that discussion, maybe I didn't give enough credence to the fact that, you know, him doing more might allow you to feel more comfortable to nap. Right. Like, right, a family is a unit and a system. Right, so right. I'll, 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 right. Um, right, so there's that. But yes, women do feel less entitled to um, pursuit of their own pleasure when their children's needs are um, in the air. But even if, I mean, that was a situation where the children's needs were being fully met, like in that hour. Yeah. But I assume there were lots of other things around the house that, that the nanny yeah, for sure. that needed to be done. Right, right. Like there, there could have been a load of laundry moved along, but like yeah. it wasn't, nothing was at a crisis point that particular yeah, yeah. day. But yeah, no, I, th- I think that's exactly the difference we're talking about where for women, it's much harder to feel like you can't relax even when it's like like things are basically done. It's just, of course, there's this endless list that we could be working through. Yeah. There's this, also, there's this invisible sense. This just happened in our house, this invisible sense about who's in charge of what. Um, And we got a puppy in October. It was like, after I finished writing the book, that was, that was what was going to happen after I finished writing the book. So my kids were so eager for me to finish so we could finally get this puppy. So we got the puppy and I said to my husband, you know, you're in charge of veterinary care. Like that's on you. Cause you know, we're trying to like divide things and mm-hmm. it's like so easy for me now to feel entitled to like give him stuff because I still kind of do more. So I was like, yes, you're on vet. So we ran out of heartworm medication a few months ago and I didn't tell him and I knew he didn't know, but he said to me last night, has she not been on her heartworm medication? And I was thinking, but you're on vet. Like what? But like, there was this assumption that I was going to tell him when it ran out. And but then that's not him being on the vet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, we had this discussion about it last night and this was underneath it and I didn't articulate it. I need to say it to him, but we both felt in this discussion, like I had dropped a ball. I know that was the like take home. So it is, you know, this is like the mental load stuff, right? It's so assumed 
that women are going to bear it. Like on vet might be him showing up to the vet once I've figured out that she needs the medicine and made the appointment. Right. Mm. I guess you're going to have to, you know, make a vet appointment. Um, but right. There's, there's a lot of interesting mental load research about men and women's assumptions about who is ultimately responsible. And I'll tell you what the research has found. <laughs> Which is that men and women both hold women responsible for the mental load and that when men are carrying the mental load, it's usually around reminding women of things they have said they will do for the man. Like you wow. said, you were going to buy me a new jacket. Wow, so, that's helpful. Yeah. 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 This, there's so much research on all this stuff. It was really a fascinating field to dig into. If yeah. depressing. If, yeah. So um, maybe we can try to give our listeners like some tips for that you've found from talking to couples who are happy with their balance. Like, are there common denominators when it comes? Um, this doesn't even have to be specific to food or feeding a family, but just are there common denominators among couples who, who feel happy with the way that the load is being shared? It's a very good question. And the answer is yes. There is one absolute common denominator. Both members of the couple understand that without close attention, things are going to fall in a certain way. And both members of the couple have articulated to each other very explicitly that they are invested in living in an egalitarian relationship. It really does take exactly that much attention. I was on Twitter last year and a woman posted an article reposted an article by, I think it was by Jessica Valenti, the journalist. And the headline was, children don't tank career, women's careers, men do. Um, and the article kind of said, like, the reason that women are, aren't getting ahead as they might is that their responsibilities at home are outsized because men, men's are undersized. Um, but anyway, this woman posted this article, this woman, Liz, and she wrote, this is true, but it doesn't have to be this way. Um, so I, I uh, messaged her. I said, you know, how was it not this way? Why is it not this way for you? And she wrote back and said, because I married a Swede, which was, you know, kind of funny. But then I said, can I, can I interview you? And it turned out she was, a, um, she was getting her doctorate in sociology and in family studies. And she knew what all the research showed. And when she met her boyfriend, who then became her husband, she said to him, look, I'm not going to live this way. This is what all the research shows is going to happen. And I want us to kind of jointly commit to staying on top of this. And he agreed. Um, and so whenever things started to get off balance, they would kind of reconvene and reconfigure. And before they had their kid, they sat down and thought about everything that was going to need to happen. I don't know how they did this because it's hard to anticipate that stuff. And they talked about who was going to do what, who was going to do hiccups. This was before they had a child. Um, so it, it seems to be like this joint commitment to living um, equally is the thing that is required of couples in order to actually pull it off, a joint and explicit agreement. Because then when you come back to it, if things get off balance, it doesn't have to be an anger, which is how so often how it goes, at least how it went in my house for sure. Um, they could just say to each other, hey, we're not meeting this goal we set. Let's recalibrate. So that's what all these couples do. And that's how they're able to pull it off. It's really, I mean, it's startling to me at least how much attention it takes in order to make it work this way. It sounds like too, though, one sort of maybe more optimistic takeaway from that is 
Yes, it requires, I mean, just a huge amount of attention, but it's also both members of the couple recognizing that this happens because of like a larger force, like this is cultural yeah. pressures. So right. then it's less about blaming this one guy yeah. for not seeing the yeah. tray of chicken nuggets or whatever. And it's more about like, oh, wait, we're both vulnerable yeah. to these larger pressures. It's taking over again. How do we like as a team fight back against that? Absolutely. Um, that's that's a great point. And people have said that to me. Um, I, I, I won't reveal who, because I would be too specific, but at least more than one woman actually has said to me, my husband and I read this together and it alleviated a lot of the pressure on both of us because we realized just what you said, Virginia, it's the societal forces. It's not that he's a jerk. It's not that I'm a martyr. It's that we're, we're living, you know, in the water that we swim in. And of course mm-hmm. we are. Okay. And we can fix it and not be mad or upset. Right, right. And not make it so personal. And I have to Mm -hmm. say too, for everyone listening, Darcy's book is, you know, I've read a lot of books on this topic and All the Rage is the one that I have found that is the most accessible for both women and men to read. It's not Mm -hmm. husband blaming and shaming because it is focused on this larger cultural problem. And so I think it's a great book to read as a couple because it's not as, you know, antagonizing as some of the other ones have been. And it's not to, you know, diss any other writers because I think rightfully there is a lot of anger around this issue and we women need to express that anger. But when you're looking for, okay, how do I actually like move forward on this? I think you're such a great I've gotten the best emails from men, which have totally floored me, um, who were like, you know, this is totally me and I want to do better. Or I thought I was a feminist, but this really opened my eyes to some things going on in my home. I did not expect that kind of feedback. That's um, amazing. And when the book came out, yeah, it's been really, actually, you know, quite, um, that's made me quite optimistic that there are men who are like, who are kind of um, seeing themselves here and wanting to um, to do something better. So Darcy, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Uh, yes, they can find me. Uh, my book has a website, which is DarcyLockman.com. And I'm on Twitter at and I can never remember it. I think it's either at Darcy Lockman or at Darcy underscore Lockman. We'll put it in the um, show notes. <laughs> yeah, I should know that. Um, so that, yeah, that's where. Thank you so much for being here, Darcy. I feel like I could talk to you for easily another hour because this research you've done is so fascinating and there's so much ground we could cover, but really appreciate you being here with us. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you for your interest. And coming up next, we are going to do some listener updates. Okay, so for this week's Unrelated, we just are going to do a kind of smorgasbord, if you will, of mini updates based on some of the great emails you guys have been sending us. Um, As always, you can email us at comfortfoodpodcast at gmail.com with any, you know, thoughts, questions, observations, musings, if you will. Um, We love to read them. So a couple of quick ones. So Amy, what did we have up first? Okay. So Sarah and uh, after we did our unrelated about exercise programs that we like, sent us a recommendation for a program called Mama Strong. So it's mamastrong.com. It's started by a woman named Courtney Wyckoff. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. She's a mom of three, newly postpartum with her third. And the program focuses on core strength and functional fitness. Um, I love that there's a daily 15-minute workout posted so that you can squeeze that in whenever you have 15 minutes. Um, 
And then there's like five minute hacks. It just sounds like it's so appropriate for this phase of life that we're, that we're in. Um, mm-hmm. She also has a fix me section for common aches and pains, which I'm going to go check out. <laughs> mm, yeah. I'm seeing upper ba- back hunching, yep. sciatica. Yep. Yep. I can relate to some of these pains. Yeah. Um, and she also talks about that. It's, she says an almost a hundred percent safe space as far as body diversity and body positivity, very little weight talk. And when there is weight talk, like in the Facebook group, um, the moderators are on it. So you can um, avoid that kind of stuff, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah, this looks great. I'm really excited to check this out. So, And she has suggested that we interview Courtney um, for our episode on Moms and Fitness, but we did it too fast. So we did not have a chance to consider that. So. Right. That is episode 41, where we got more into mom workout stuff. So definitely check that one out. But if this is a topic you guys are interested in, we can maybe do another episode and try to get Courtney to come on because she sounds awesome. Um, Cool. All right. So then the next update, um, this is really breaking news, guys. This is important. Um, In episode 39, I believe it was, where we talked about snacking, Amy and I railed against the idea of children eating raw cauliflower, um, even if it's purple or green or some fancy cauliflower. You see this a lot on Instagram in the like Instagram rainbow bento box type snacking stuff. Um, And we were talking about how that's not unrealistic. But Ruth emails and says, Hi, Virginia and Amy. Here in the UK, raw cauliflower is a standard crudite component. Definitely not an Insta invention for us. It's my dad's, a university professor in his 60s favorite, and he is not cool or on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) It is delish with hummus, and my kids, age one and two, like it too. When when they go through a blessed phase of eating anything outside their staple diet of raisins, apples, cornflakes, and oatcakes. So um, I have to say, I am half British. My mom is British, and I did not know raw cauliflower was a thing. So um, quick blame to all my British relatives for not enlightening me faster. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's not just an Instagram trend. They, I do like that she specifies that it is offered with a dip because that I makes think it that is one of the palatable. things that is not often lacking in the rainbow displays. It is often plain. Yeah which I think would have, you know, if it's like a vehicle yeah. for eating ranch or hummus, I could see, like, I could totally see Tula using it as like a spoon to to get more hummus in her face. Oh. <laughs> would she eat the eat the cauliflower underneath the hummus though? Because um, my kids have been known to lick pretty I aggressively. <laughs> I don't um, know. I'll, I can try it out and see, but she would definitely, yeah. I mean, she likes dips a lot. So. Um, all right. Next update. Um, oh, this was a really sweet note. This is from Jessica who emailed to say um, this was in response to episode 40 about growth charts that we did. Um, She says, specifically, thank you, Virginia, this week for mentioning that Beatrix is in high growth curve percentiles for height and weight. Despite being pretty in tune to hidden diet culture messages, listening today, I realized that I still had an assumption that your kids were fed the, quote, right way major air quotes, and therefore must have bodies that were beyond critique. My 19-month-old daughter is in the 90-90 club. She's tall and sturdy, and hearing that one of my feeding role models' children has the same body type gave me so much peace. Oh, I really love that. Um, First of all, a 90-90 toddler body is absolutely beyond critique in my mind. Um, They're adorable. 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, the whole point of this is that healthy bodies come in a range of shapes and sizes. And so uh, some kids are going to be big and some kids are going to be small and some yeah. are going to be small. Some kids are going to be like so. 90, 10 on that curve. So Right. Yeah. Or 10, 90. You know, there's a lot of combinations. So yeah, I think remembering that, you know, if we get away from, this is like the big argument for getting away from fixating on weight is like you can really embrace health at every size and understand that, you know, human diversity is a pretty great thing. But I can definitely understand that anxiety, especially if you've had a pediatrician saying the wrong things about your toddler's body. Um, yeah. So I'm glad I could help. Beatrix is glad she could help too. I mean, she doesn't know, <laughs> but she will be glad. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. Tell a partner about this episode, maybe have a conversation about all of these issues. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at B underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burn Toast logo is by Tiana Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.